Good morning, y'all. I got this thing on. Am I good to go? Nice. Thank you. Um, as Adam said, my name is Jordan. Set my timer here. Nobody wants to drop a 50-minute sermon on somebody early, you know. They'll never welcome me back if you go that long. Um, but uh, as Adam said, my name is Jordan, and uh, I'm currently, uh, or the last five years, have been serving as a pastor at uh, Vintage Church in downtown Raleigh. It's an Acts 29 church, which uh, I know y'all are familiar with as a church planning network, and uh, have developed friendship with Adam just through our monthly pastor, pastor's gatherings. And uh, yeah, I'm just really thankful for Adam in a lot of ways, uh, really super practically oriented over the last season. Uh, church planning um, is difficult. As he said, we're in the process of church planning. And one thing that I've been overwhelmed about is the amount of decisions. Like, you got to pick a chair, and this one's got this much fluff, and this one's got a mesh backing or giving platforms, uh, website, all this stuff. And uh, I've text Adam several times and been like, just tell me what to do here because uh, you're a season ahead of me. And uh, I usually make decisions really quickly, but I've sat through like 35 demos on which giving platform to use. And I'm just like, Adam, I need your help. So very, very, very grateful for him, especially uh, just practically that he's a little season ahead of me and uh, he's figuring it out and pass along the do's and don'ts. So very, very grateful for that. As, as he mentioned, uh, we're planting King's Table Church. Um, King's Table comes from 2 Samuel 9, the story of Mephibosheth and David. Uh, if you go back and read that, you'll uh, hear more about why we're called King's, King's Table Church, but uh, we're, we're loving it so far. You know, I've got two rock star families with me, the Brzezinski's over here, Kashi and Jordan, uh, who um, have just been incredibly encouraging and have been working really hard as we gather a team of people, and the Wishings as well. Um, Kat, who's uh, not here this morning, she uh, is going to be doing childcare for us. Her husband, Lee's incredible too, and of course, my wife. I'd be crazy not to brag on her. Her name's Jessica, and as Adam said, uh, we just adopted a little boy in April, and um, we are uh, making it <laughs> in terms of sleeping and stuff like that. So uh, uh, we're uh, she's uh, back home in our home church, but uh, didn't want to travel uh, two hours this morning with him. But anyway, we're very, very grateful to be here and thankful to be partnered with like-minded churches like Citizens and Adam. Um, I'm not sure how many of y'all are familiar with Dylan Dotson that planted uh, them, but he's a great friend too. So we've got a really good squad in North Carolina, and uh, I'm grateful for that. Uh, from what I hear, yeah, you, this summer you guys have been traveling through the Psalms of Ascent, um, which as y'all know are, are uh, the Psalms uh, 120 to 134 in the Old Testament. And by way of reminder, these are called the Psalms of Ascent because um, uh, the Israelites would sing them as they traveled uh, from their homes to ascend Mount Zion uh, in Jerusalem to observe uh, uh, feasts there. And as they made uh, these trips, they would be long, uh, they would be often be hard on the body, and uh, the Israelites would often be subject to either, either thieves or robbers that would come in uh, as they made their journey, and uh, it made it really difficult. And they would sing these songs to remind them of what God has done, who he is, and how they can trust and hope in him. And that brings us to Psalm uh, 130 this morning. If you have a Bible, and I hope that you do, uh, you can turn with me to Psalm 130. Psalm 130, and I'll read um, those eight verses and uh, pray, and then we'll hop in uh, this morning. Psalm 130, verse 1 says, Out of the depths I call to you, O Lord. Lord, listen to my voice. Uh, let your ears be attentive to my cry for help. Lord, if you kept an account of iniquities... Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be revered. Verse 5, I wait for the Lord. I wait and put my hope in his word. I wait for the Lord more than a watchman for the morning, more than a watchman for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for there is faithful love with the Lord, and with him is redemption in abundance, and he will redeem Israel from all its iniquities. Let me pray real quick. Father, we love you. 
We're so very, very thankful for your word. Um, it's a treasure for us as followers of Jesus, and uh, pray it be our God. Uh, and this morning, as we look at the uh, theological concept of guilt and forgiveness and uh, revering you, I pray you'd fill me with your spirit, uh, give me supernatural uh, energy uh, as a new dad uh, who needs it, and uh, pray that I could encourage this church that's been such an encouragement um, uh, to Jessica and I and our church planning team. So, uh, Jesus, we love you. We're so thankful for your word. Uh, often, uh, Father, I love to pray, well does the accuser roar of wrongs that I've done. I know them all and thousands more. Father, I know you knoweth none because of the gospel. Uh, so, God, I know I stand before uh, my friends this morning as a man qualified by Jesus and Jesus alone. And uh, because of that, Father, I pray that no one would leave here thinking that I'm great, that they would leave here thinking that you are great and that you love them more than they could ever ask uh, or imagine. And that's that in Christ's name. Amen. Well, uh, Psalm 130 uh, covers a really intense topic. Um, it answers the question, what do we do with guilt? And now this is important that we define our uh, terms clearly, right? Biblical guilt is being convicted through God's Spirit for disobeying God's commands. And guilt uh, is being uh, convicted about something that you've done that God called you not to do, or maybe uh, something they called you to do that you didn't do. And we're going to talk about this at length in a bit, but many of us uh, or for many of us, rather, there can be a ton of baggage around the word, word guilt, right? There may be things that you've done two decades ago that you're carrying around or um, dwelling on or wallowing in for years. Uh, God doesn't want that for you, right? God's uh, word does not call you to do that. Uh, when guilty, we confess it, we're forgiven, and we move forward. We'll talk about that more uh, later in the sermon. But the main point of today's passage is this. All people are guilty before God and in desperate need of forgiveness. All people are guilty before God and in desperate need of forgiveness. And this is good news. Now, how in the world is this good news? Well, a silly illustration. Following Jesus is kind of like jumping on a trampoline. Bear with me. Right? The, how, do you, how do you jump high on a trampoline? Right? You go low. And the lower you go, the more the springs come under tension, and you're flung higher. And this is analogous to understanding the gospel, right? The, the lower that we go in understanding our own condition before God, the more we are in awe of what Jesus did for, for us through his life, death, and resurrection. Uh, one theologian that I love to read, Thomas Watson, says, Until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Or in other words, until we see our great need for Jesus, uh, we will not appreciate all that he's done uh, for us. So we're going to look at guilt today, not because we desire to despair, but because this passage takes us from going from despair uh, to... Uh, to hoping and seeing what God has done for us in Jesus. And again, our main point today is that all people are guilty and in desperate need of forgiveness, which can be found in Christ alone. And specifically, uh, this psalm points to a lot, but I'll, I can only fit so much in 30 minutes. So I'm only going to cover verses 1 to 4. We'll touch on verses 5 to 8 at the end, but in depth, I'm only going to cover verses 1 to 4. And in verses 1 to 4, we see at least three things. First, the psalmist realizes that he needs mercy because God accounts for or marks sin. We'll see that in verses 1 and 3. But secondly, the psalmist uh, understands that God not only uh, accounts for sin, but he also offers forgiveness of sin. We'll see that in the first half of verse 4. And then thirdly, the psalmist understands that God's forgiveness leads us to fear him, or the CSB says to revere him. We'll see that in the second half of uh, verse 4b. Y'all ready? Let's get going. Uh, three points. The first, uh, the psalmist realizes that he needs mercy because God uh, marks sin. Look back at your Bibles in verses um, 1 to 3. God's word says, Out of the depths I call to you, O Lord. Uh, Lord, listen to my voice and let your ears be attentive to my cry for help. Lord, if you kept an account of iniquities, 
Lord, who could stand? Well, what's going on in this individual's life? Well, he's in desperate need, right? He's in the depths, and he needs help. Right? He's in a hopeless situation, and he wants God to aid him. And what does he need? If you look back at your Bibles, he says, Let your ears be attentive to the, my cry for help. Right? Another translation says mercy. And mercy is simply just uh, compassion or forgiveness shown in a, to an offender. And his plea for mercy tells us that he knows he's guilty, and he's asking God for compassion and forgiveness rather than justice. And further, if you look back at your Bibles, from where is this guy crying out? He's crying out from the depths. And to whom is he crying out to? Well, to the Lord. So the psalmist knows that he's in a situation that he cannot get himself out of by himself. Right? He is in the desperate need of the help of another. And this is really critical uh, for us for our understanding the basic message of the Bible. Right? We need the help of another, capital A. Right? We've offended an infinitely holy God, and we're utterly, utterly unable to make amends by our own works, which is really uh, frustrating for me personally. I don't know about you, but I like fixing things myself. I don't, I don't like needing the help of another. And I see this uh, most clearly when I go to the dentist. Now, this is a silly illustration, but bear with me. When I was in college, I went to the dentist my junior year, and they did the x-rays, right, where they put the weighted blanket on you. And then they go into another room. Side note, why do they do that? Where do they go? Why isn't the button in the room? I've always wanted that. If you know that, come tell me after the service. Anyway, the dentist uh, came in after they did the little weighted blanket x-rays, and uh, she says, you got three cavities, Mr. Penley. So I left there super bummed. I was like, you know what? I'm going to fix this. So I went to Target, and I bought some tools. Not exaggerating at all. This is a true story. I bought the little uh, scrapers and mirrors for your teeth, and I did those myself. I bought the little mini pressure washer for your teeth. It's got a water pick, right? Started using that. I bought miles and miles and miles of floss, right? And I was going to floss 24-7. I bought the $300 toothbrush, right, the Sonicare <laughs> that you use, and I was doing that 24-7. And my dentist swore by this stuff called Actrance. So I was like, well, I'm going to do this breakfast, lunch, and dinner uh, for the rest of my life. Now, by God's providence and kindness, this is exactly when I started dating Jessica. Uh, so it worked out really well for me. But uh, <laughs> I went back a year later. And I've been fixing the problem myself, right? Go back to the dentist. They put the weighted blanket on me, disappear, smoke a cigarette or whatever they do. <laughs> and then they come back and uh, they do the x-rays and they says, uh, Mr. Penley, you have four cavities. <laughs> I was like, man, this stinks. I hate the dentist. Anyway, uh, I was in the depths, right? And I, I needed the help of another. I was in a hopeless situation in and of my own strength. I couldn't fix the problem, right? I had offended, uh, offended the rules of dental hygiene <laughs> and I needed help from another, right? And to solve the problem, uh, for us personally, right, we have a similar condition before God, right? The, the psalmist gets it, gets it, right? He's in the depths, he's offended God, and he cannot save himself. He needs uh, God to give him mercy. And the next question may be, well, uh, what specifically has this person done to warrant mercy or to warrant needing help? We'll look back at verse 3 of uh, Psalm uh, 130. Uh, Lord, if you kept an account of iniquities, Lord, who could stand? Well, the psalmist understands this. God keeps account of sin. All right, and the first uh, observation to note here in verse 3 is that the psalmist isn't presenting a hypothetical if. The if isn't an if of uncertainty, right? As if there's a chance that God will not hold people accountable for wrongdoing. You know, theologians call this an if of logical consequence. And the psalmist is saying, if God keeps account of sin, which he does, then who in the world would be able to stand? And the answer, you know, is, of course, uh, no one. You might even ask, you know, depending on your spiritual background, well, what is iniquity, right, that verse 3 says? Or uh, uh, what does that even mean? Well, iniquity is uh, simply another word for sin. And sin is simply 
disobeying God's uh, commands. And what this means is uh, in all of our hearts, uh, woven inside of our hearts, there is an objective morality that we have all disobeyed. Right? I'd argue that we all know this, regardless of where you are spiritually. Maybe you're here today and you're atheist. We're so glad that you're here. Maybe you're an agnostic. We're so glad that you're here. Maybe you're a doubter of Christianity or a seeker of Christianity. Regardless of where you're at spiritually, we're so thankful you're here. But I would say that you know this, apart from the Bible, that there's an objective morality like pressing in on your hearts. No one needs to teach you that there's an objective, objective standard. In fact, um, your daily dialogue assumes this. What I, mean, what I mean by this, well, if you were to get out your phone right now and search in your text messages for the word should, that would prove my point. What I, mean, what I mean by this, well, this is what I mean. You might find a text message that says, I should have taken out the trash. Or maybe I should not have yelled at you at dinner. And when we're doing this, our language is presupposing that there's an objective morality that we failed to meet. Or we know this in sports, right? Watch a state fan, watch the Wolfpack play. Right, you know what you're going to hear? That's unfair. That's not the rules. Uh, uh, that, that ref's unjust. Right? And when we use this type of language, right, we're presupposing there's some sort of objective standard that we all agree to that's not being met. And we see this interpersonally, and we see this uh, also in our uh, dialogue. And uh, C.S. Lewis um, said this so eloquently in Mere Christianity where he says this, Arguing means that you're trying to show that the other man is in the wrong. And there would be no sense in trying to do that unless you had some sort of agreement as to what wrong and right are. So our arguments prove that we believe that there's a standard. And this standard comes, comes from Jesus, and he cares when we disobey this objective standard. And we see God's objective standard most clearly in the Ten Commandments, where God tells Israel what it's like to live as his people. And then Jesus does this fascinating thing with the Ten Commandments. First, he summarizes in the great commandment, which is in Matthew 22, where he tells um, uh, his listeners to love God and love others. And if you look at the Ten Commandments, there's this amazing thing that Jesus does with the, ten, uh, with the great commandment, rather. He tells us the whole law is summed up in two things, love God and love your neighbor. And if you think of the Ten Commandments, the first four are simply an expression of what it means to love God, right? Uh, there's one God, don't make an image of him, don't take the Lord's name in vain, and honor the Sabbath. And then Jesus says, love your neighbor, which the last six commandments are summarized under love your neighbor, right? Uh, honor your father and mother. Don't murder one another. That's a great way to love your neighbor. Uh, don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. And don't covet. You see that? But then Jesus gives even a deeper uh, explanation of the Ten Commandments in the Sermon on the Mount where he says things like this. You've heard it said that you shouldn't murder. Well, I'll tell you this. Anyone who even hates a brother is uh, liable for judgment. Or then he says, well, you've heard it said uh, don't commit adultery. But I'll tell you, any, anybody who's lusted in their heart is guilty of adultery. And what Jesus is doing here is, is showing us that God keeps account of all sin, right? Not just the sin that we can see. God marks all sin, both internal and external. And one pastor uh, summarizes it like this. He says, what kind of sins does God keep account of? Well, he marks private sins and public sins. He notes those done in darkness as well as those done in light. He marks new sins while the old sins never fade. He marks the sins that we remember and the sins that we forget. He marks the sins that we know about and the sins we've committed that we're unaware of. He marks the big sins and the little sins. He marks sins that we try to make up for and the sins that we cannot make up for. God marks sins. And the, the application here is this. We're supposed to look at this reality that God keeps account of sin and respond. Right? We're supposed to look at God's objective standard and respond to him. And what's your response? What is your conclusion when you observe 
how we've failed to meet God's objective standard, his commandments. Well, Jesus, Jesus shows us what the possible responses are uh, in this uh, short parable in Luke chapter 18. Read along, or um, Listen as I read to you from uh, Luke 18. Two men went up to a temple to pray. One a Pharisee, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, Robber, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. You see, the only pre prerequisite to following Jesus is knowing that we need him, is admitting that we need mercy, right? Or, or you might say it like this, the only thing that we contribute to our salvation is a sin that made it necessary, right? And the psalmist says, God, you're going to hold me accountable for sin. And since you are, I can't stand. Therefore, you know what we should say? We say, Lord, out of the depths, I cry to you. Oh, Lord, hear my voice and be attentive to the voice of my cry for help. And at this point, if you're tracking with me, you're feeling the gospel trampoline, right? We are deep in our bounce, but we're about to come right up out of it if you look at uh, verse 4a, right? First, the psalmist realizes that he needs mercy because God marks sin, and that takes us deep in the trampoline. But uh, the second point this morning, God, uh, the, the psalmist understands that God forgives sin. Look back at your Bible in verses uh, 3 and 4. Uh, verse 3 and 4 says, Lord, if you kept iniquities, account of iniquities, who could stand? But with you, here's the good news. There is forgiveness so that, so that you may be revered. This is where we got to the bottom of the trampoline. We're coming out of it, right? There's a but. It is true that no one can stand before God. All have sinned and fall short of his glory, but there is forgiveness through Jesus Christ, right? The scriptures are full of God's promises to forgive and redeem anyone who will trust in Christ. Right? The scriptures are full of how he has done the necessary work to redeem fallen humanity to himself and how he has accomplished the forgiveness that we need through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And as I was driving in from Raleigh this morning, I was like, man, I really want to be able to describe the forgiveness of God uh, to Citizens Church. And here's my best shot. This is what I would say. I would say God's forgiveness is promised. You know, in Genesis 3.15, right after our great, 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 great grandpappy, Adam and Eve, uh, disobey God for the very first time, God promised, I'm going to send a redeemer, uh, one of my offspring, to, to provide a way for you to be reconciled, for the curse to be reversed. And he did that through the life, death, and resurrection of his son. Secondly, I tell you that God's forgiveness is waiting for you. You know, Nehemiah chapter 9, uh, verse 17 says that God stands ready to forgive anyone who will run and flee to him. You know, one of my favorite theologians, uh, Richard Sibbs, says that there, are, there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. You get that? There's more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. That's, his, well, that's what his forgiveness is like. God's forgiveness is indiscriminate. If you remember the people that was listed uh, in Luke chapter 18, right? God will forgive adulterers, murderers, thieves, extortioners. It's offered to everyone. Like, God doesn't withhold uh, his forgiveness from anyone that will flee to him for refuge. Further, uh, God's forgiveness is full and forever. You know, with God, there's no down payment. There's no earnest money, no due diligence, right? God pays our forgiveness in full. Jesus was crucified for all of our sins, our past, present, and future. Psalms 103 says, um, 
as far as the east is from the west, so far does God remove our transgressions from us. Or Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12. Listen to this good news. For I will uh, uh, be merciful towards their, their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. That is the promise for anyone who has faith and trust in Christ. Further, God's forgiveness is guaranteed. In John chapter 6, verse 37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I'll never cast out. Right? You, if, if you come to faith and trust in Christ, you'll, he'll never lose you, right? Uh, you know, side note, uh, one theologian says, you know, the question, can I lose my salvation? He says this. He says, um, uh, if you could lose your salvation, you would, right? If you could lose your salvation, you would, right? Jesus has you, and he promises I'll never leave you. Or 1 John 1, 9, one of my favorite Bible verses says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, God's forgiveness is guaranteed because God isn't like me. When I left the house this morning, I told Jessica I'd take out the trash. And when I got to exit 131, I realized I'd forgotten that, right? I don't keep my promises often, either because I'm lazy uh, or forgetful, but God's not like me, right? God remembers his promises. And the last thing I would say about God's forgiveness is this. God's forgiveness is expiring. And what I mean by that is we all have a finite amount of time here on earth. And surely no one is so mad as an individual who lives unprepared to die. Right? Why would we do that? Why would you leave Citizens Church this morning without receiving the forgiveness that God freely offers in Christ? So I'd ask you, you know, what, what do we do with our guilt? Well, the first thing is uh, we can deny it and say that uh, there are no rules, but we know that that won't work. Uh, second, we can bell curve it. Right? We can say, uh, Lord, I'm not really that bad. You know, have you met him? Have you met her? I'm actually, if you grade on a curve here, I look pretty good relative to other people uh, in our world. But God doesn't do that at all, right? He compares us to his son who lived a perfect life. And thirdly, uh, one option we can do is we can receive it. Like we can receive his forgiveness. And that would be my hope this morning. You know, and it's kind of twofold. I would hope that uh, people in the room who don't follow Jesus, who haven't trusted in him, would receive forgiveness for the first time. But then secondly, followers of Christ in the room who have received forgiveness, I pray that you would experience it. So let's unpack those two things real quickly. First, I want the unforgiven in the room to become forgiven. Right? My hope is that the doubter or seeker in the room, someone, uh, you, you'd say, I'm not a Christian. If you're in the room, I want you to receive the, receive the forgiveness of God. And this is what I would say. God will mark iniquity. Right? He will hold us accountable for wrongdoing. And you and I both will not be able to stand on our own moral record. Right, so you might ask, you know, how can a God who hates sin forgive it? Well, the answer is through Jesus, right? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to earth through the virgin birth. He dwelt among us. He lived a perfect life in total obedience to the Father, and he never disobeyed God. In fact, the answer to the question in verse 3, O Lord, if you should keep account of iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? You know what the answer to that is? It's Jesus Christ, right? Because he never disobeyed the Father. Because of his perfect life, he had the right to be with the Father forever, Right? However, instead of that, instead of life forever, he took on our iniquities and God placed all of his wrath on Jesus in our place on the cross. And Jesus died for me and Jesus died for you. And then th three days later, Jesus rose, proving that he was God and that he has the authority to forgive anybody who will trust in him. And then, and only then, is someone reconciled to the Father and receiving, uh, receives the forgiveness that they uh, uh, so desperately need. So I beg you this morning, flee to Christ. 
and ask him to forgive you. And one of the beautiful things about the Bible, everybody in the scriptures who asks God for mercy gets mercy. Everybody in the scriptures who asks God for forgiveness gets forgiveness. And then secondly, I would ask, if you're a follower of Jesus in the room, maybe you've been a Christian for 50 years, right? I want you to experience the forgiveness of God. What do I mean by this? Well, even as a follower of Jesus, if you're anything like me, we can have a great regret about something we've done in the past. And we're often, we do a really poor job of forgiving ourselves of that thing. You know, at the beginning of the sermon, I said that there's a difference between uh, dwelling over sin and being convicted uh, over sin. You know, wallowing in sin and being convicted over it. And the point here is that we should mourn our sin, but we definitely should not dwell on it. What do I mean? Well, what is the difference? This is what I would say. If I can be a little vulnerable this morning, uh, my junior year in high school, I did something that I deeply regret. It wasn't criminal uh, or anything like that. Uh, it wasn't illegal, but uh, I, pretty, I heard a girl's feeling, uh, feelings that I was dating pretty severely. And um, I carried that around for like decades, decades uh, of just misery and wouldn't forgive myself. You know, I, I knew I was a follower of Jesus, but I was like, man, this is just messing with me. And I read this uh, from a book called... Um, Spiritual depression, its causes and cures, when I was 29 years old, right, it, almost two decades later. This is what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. He said, this is precisely what I would say at this moment to anyone who is dwelling over some particular sin, some unhappy past event in your life. I do not care what it is. What I say to you in this is this. In the name of God, what God has forgiven by the blood of his only begotten son, do not call unforgiven. Do not go on praying frantically to be forgiven of that past sin. Believe God's word. Do not ask him for a message of forgiveness. He has given it to you already. Your prayer may well be an expression of unbelief at that point. Believe him and his word. You see, my sin then was not believing that God had actually forgiven me for the thing I did in high school, right? Rather than the actual thing that I'd already received forgiveness for. And that took me 12 years to experience. But that day when I read that book and I closed it, I was like, I think I get it. God has forgiven me of this. And there might be something like that for you this morning. That you, you, maybe you've done this week or this month, or maybe when you were 17 years old in high school as well. And I'd pray that God would allow you to experience his forgiveness. So number one, uh, the psalmist realizes that he needs mercy because God keeps count of sin. Number two, the psalmist understands that God forgives sin. And thirdly, the psalmist understands that God's forgiveness leads us to revere him or to fear him. Right, the, the, the forgiven will desire to honor the forgiver. That's the point of our last uh, uh, verse this morning, which is found in 4b. If you look at uh, Psalm 130, verse 4, but with you there's forgiveness, and then there's a so that statement, so that you may be revered. Right, the easy question is you read this, it might be, well, if God forgives, great. I can do whatever I want to do. Right, I can do, I can live however I want to, and God will just forgive me. And what I would say is that comment is so far from the heart of someone who's truly experienced the grace and forgiveness of God. You see, God's kindness, the book of Romans tells us, is uh, meant to lead us to repentance, right? God's forgiveness will lead us to revere him or to fear him in an increasing manner. Now, uh, fear here is a very important word, right? What do you mean by fear? Well, theologians say, uh, talk about two different types of fear. fear. There's servile fear, where uh, you are afraid of abuse or punishment, and there's philia fear, where you have reverence or honor, like the, uh, the, a fearing a, a really good mother, a really good father. And this passage is definitely talking about filial fear. And we know that 
because uh, servile fear would be reduced with forgiveness, right? But this passage says that fears or reverence is increased when we experience forgiveness. So what does this mean? Now, what does this mean? It means that once you experience the forgiveness of God, you want to honor your father. You want to honor him. You want to please him. You know, this analogy is so hard for so many of us because many of us come from incredibly hard and broken homes. But hypothetically, hypothetically, if you can imagine having a really, really, really good father, and he said, son, I want you to be home by 11 o'clock. Right? You aren't terrified that he's going to abuse you if you're late. Rather, you want to honor him because you trust that he knows what's best for you in life. Right now, you may have feared some godly discipline uh, for uh, you know, any of the younger folks in the room, but you didn't fear him interpersonally, right? You want to honor him because you love him and you trust that he knows what's best for you. So as we look at God's command, uh, they should do two things for us. First, they should help us realize that we need Jesus. But then secondly, well, uh, they should become the guide for our life, right? Where our hearts say, Father, I want to honor you. I trust that what you say is best for me. So help me to revere and honor and fear you in, in the ways that your word uh, proclaims. So that's the three points this morning. Let's talk real briefly about application as we wrap up. How do we apply these uh, three things, right? The psalmist knows that God uh, marks sin, therefore he needs mercy. Secondly, he knows that God uh, forgives sin. And, and then thirdly, uh, he understands that this forgiveness leads us to fear him. Well, how do we apply it? The first thing I would say is to, to receive it. Receive this forgiveness. Again, if you're in the room and uh, you don't know Jesus, you don't have a personal relationship with him, I would tell you, flee to Christ. Receive his forgiveness right where you're sitting. As simple as this. You can pray to God right now. Father, Forgive me. I want the grace and forgiveness that this joker's talking about. And right there, any heart that truly means those words, God the Father will say, absolutely, my dear daughter. Absolutely, my dear son. And then tell Adam and walk with God for a lifetime, uh, telling people about the forgiveness that you receive from him. Uh, secondly, I think it should lead us to forgive others. Right? If God can forgive our greatest regrets from high school or this past month, or, when, or whenever, and give us grace, it should lead us to want to do that for others. You know, verse 7 of this passage, which I didn't get to unpack a ton, uh, says, Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for there's faithful love with the Lord, and uh, with, with him there's redemption in abundance. He will redeem Israel from all its, in, its iniquities. Man, it's like, if God can do that for me, provide redemption in abundance, redeem me from all my iniquities, it should be, I should be able to, by his grace and mercy, and his Spirit's power, to be able to do that. Uh, to my friends who uh, maybe have offended me or sinned against me as well. Uh, thirdly, I'd say this, this passage should lead us to be patient and humble. Patient and humble. Uh, again, look back at verses 5 and 6. The psalmist says, I wait for the Lord. I wait and I put my hope in his word. I wait for the Lord more than a watchman for the morning, more than a watchman for the morning, right? God's grace will allow us to be patient because if we've received uh, his forgiveness, uh, we can be patient in the midst of crazy circumstances where things aren't going uh, the way that we anticipate or, or want them to. And then the last thing I would say is that we should tell others uh, about forgiveness where we work, play, and live. Right? As a follower of Jesus, you've experienced grace. You've been reconciled to the God of the song we just sang of Abraham, Jacob, Mary, Moses, Isaac, all these things. It's like you know the creator of the universe. You are a daughter of the Most High God. You are the son of the Most High God. Surely a simple application of that is we tell people, you know, if you don't uh, know how to do that, grab Adam. Hey, how do I engage with my neighbors? How do I engage with my coworkers? How do I engage with, uh, you know, moms at the playground? Whatever it may be, because I want to tell people about this uh, forgiveness. And in doing so, I think we'll rightly and biblically apply uh, Psalms, uh, uh, Psalm uh, 130, 
1 to 8. Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, thank you so much uh, for the grace and mercy that is in uh, Jesus Christ. And thank you that we can know you and walk with you and trust you. Uh, thanks that even though uh, you're just and holy and mark sin and keep account of sin, that there's forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And through him and him alone, can we know you, walk with you, trust you, love you, and cherish you. So Father, I pray for the individuals in the room. I pray for somebody in this room who drove in this morning thinking this is the last Sunday I'm ever going to church. God, I pray your spirit would grab them and they would stay and continue to cling to your word and hear the gospel preached week in and week out at this church. Not uh, because I'm great or Adam is great or this band's great, but because you are. And you did uh, more than they could ever, ever ask or imagine on the cross. For individuals in the room uh, who need ex to experience forgiveness for something they did a long time ago and they've never let it go, I gotta pray Psalm 130 would apply the gospel to their heart. They could leave here a forgiven woman or a forgiven man and actually allow themselves to experience forgiveness. And as always, Father, I pray that you'd work and move in ways that we can never ask uh, uh, or uh, more than we could even ask uh, or imagine. I ask that in Christ's name. Amen.